Thank you, JT. That was beautiful, just beautiful. Aren't you glad for what the Lord has done for you? Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And I have an important announcement this morning, an announcement of celebration. Uh, Morgan Brown, who, of course, grew up in our church, Morgan Brown and Gage Moeller are now engaged as of September the 3rd, so about a month ago. And uh, their plan is to get married next year in October in Gatlinburg. So if you see them in the hallway, now they'll be in the second service. They're not in this service, but they'll both be in the uh, second service. But if you see them, let them know you're happy for them and praying for them. John chapter 20. Chapter 19 and 20 make up the cross and the resurrection in the Gospel of John. As I've said several times, the pinnacle, really, of the Holy Bible. The high place. That which provides for you and me a home in heaven. And uh, we spent a few... Sundays on chapter 19, and we're in chapter 20 now. This is our third time in chapter 20, looking at the resurrection of Christ. John doesn't tell everything that happened. If you put the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John together, then you see all of the events that's recorded for us. John tells some things sometimes that the other ones do not tell. Remember, he writes about 30 years later than the other three gospel writers. We looked last week at Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see Jesus. And, uh, and then we come today to verse 19. Now, between what happened when Mary saw Jesus... We know that uh, uh, Jesus appeared to the ladies not far from the sepulcher, and they held him by his feet and worshipped him. Must have been a glorious moment, don't you think? And then he appeared to two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and they come running back afterwards to tell the disciples they came back to Jerusalem. And then he appeared sometime during the day to Peter. But... What John records for us is what took place the evening of that first day. Pick it up in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable, I pray. Speak to us, teach us, encourage us. Lord Jesus, you are risen. You are risen from the dead. You are our risen Savior and Lord and friend. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Kelvin Cochran was the fourth of six children raised in extreme poverty by a single mom in Shreveport, Louisiana. His mother took him to church, though, and as a young person, he gave his heart to Christ 
and developed over the years a strong faith in the Lord Jesus. He tells that from the moment he first witnessed a crew of firefighters put out a fire in a neighbor's home, Kelvin knew what he wanted to be when he grew up, a firefighter. So after graduation, he became one. One of the first African-Americans hired by the Shreveport Fire Department. He moved up in the ranks to become uh, Shreveport's first African-American fire chief while he was still in his mid-30s. Eight years later, he got a call from Atlanta, and they wanted him to come and be the fire chief in uh, the huge Atlanta Fire Department with 750 members. He did so. And uh, his work was very successful. And then in 2009, the president appointed, appointed him the U.S. Fire, uh, the head of the U.S. Fire Administration. After a few years, the Atlanta Fire Department began to deteriorate. They asked him to come back, talked him into it. He came back and got things going again for the fire department. And after a, f a few years, the fire department received a class one in their ratings. Out of all the fire departments in America, only 60 got class one. And Cochran had brought the fire department up to these great heights. Cochran was a Christian and loved the Lord through all these years, and he, he liked to witness to people and share his faith, but he was always very careful to follow the rules uh, in the workplace. He only witnessed to those or shared with those who came to him and asked his opinion or thoughts about those things. He taught a Bible study in his church, and he formed a... Uh, a study group with young men. He had a real burden for young men uh, to win them to Christ and to help them in their journey. And uh, so he formed a, a study group for men looking for authentic manhood. I love that title, authentic manhood. Somewhere along the line there, he wrote a little book or booklet himself, had it privately published. And the book shared the gospel and talked about authentic manhood. He gave the booklets to, to those who would ask him and those who were in his study group and so forth. He also, as a courtesy, gave the book to the mayor of Atlanta and to a few civil leaders. About a year after the book was published, a council member by the name of Alex Wan, W-A-N, read a few pages outlined in, in his book on the biblical approach to sexuality. In his booklet, he says, and I quote now, that sex outside of male-female marriage is contrary to God's will. Well, that's when the trouble began. And this council member stirred folks up. They had meetings, meetings behind closed doors, and meetings here, meetings there. And as the National Review reports, 
In January of 2015, Cochran was fired. After all of the success, after them begging him to come back and, and fix the fire department, after all he had done, they fired him. And they didn't even provide him the proper process that's prescribed by the city codes. He claims they didn't even give him a chance to verbally answer any questions. At no point did any employee of the fire department complain of mistreatment or discrimination. But Council Member Wan tells the reason. He says, and I quote, when you're a city employee and your thoughts, beliefs, and opinions are different from the city's, you have to check them at the door. End of quote. Isaiah said, Woe unto them who, who say good is evil and evil is good. Woe unto them who say darkness is light and light is darkness. Woe unto them who say sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet. Boy, we live in that day, don't we? You can promote homosexuality, you can celebrate it, you can push it on people, but you, but you can't even hold an opinion different from it that you have gotten from the Bible without losing your job. It's an amazing time in which we live. Cochran, as you can imagine, was hurt by all of this. He felt mistreated. He felt cheated. He must have been angry at some point, troubled, hurt, discouraged. He felt beat up. <laughs> Maybe he felt overwhelmed. The disciples had some of these same feelings. They were afraid. They were hurt. They were troubled. They were discouraged. Jesus had been tortured and nailed to a cross and all of their hopes of this new kingdom coming in had been crushed. Now it's the night of the resurrection and some people say he arose from the dead. Other people said they stole his body. They don't know what to believe. They're confused. And in the midst of all this confusion and discouragement, despondency, Jesus comes to them. Just like he comes to us in all of our pain and sorrow and, and hurt and disappointment. <clears throat> Jesus came to them. Go back to verse 19. It was again the first day of the week. The doors were shut. By the way, that... The word shut there in the Greek indicates that they were locked. Some newer translations actually translate that. The doors were locked. And the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They were afraid, discouraged. Maybe the same thing would happen to them that happened to Jesus. You know, they might be tortured and put on a cross. They were afraid. Notice the next phrase came Jesus and stood in their midst. Jesus came to them in their sorrow and pain and heartache, and he stood in the midst. Somehow he came into that room without opening that locked door. Any other place in the Scripture where you can think of it where it says a door was closed or locked? If any, very few. The Holy Spirit 
specifically puts this in here and says the door was shut and locked so we would know a little bit about Jesus' new glorified body. He could enter a room without even coming through the door. And there he was in the midst with them and said, Peace be unto you. And then he showed him his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Their sorrow was turned into joy when they saw the Lord. But that didn't happen. John doesn't tell us what Luke tells us. Luke tells us that when they first saw Jesus, they were terrified. They thought they had seen a ghost. They thought it was a spirit. That's the reason Jesus said, handle me, touch me. Look at it with me if you look at your screen. Luke 24, Jesus says, peace be unto you. Just the same thing we read here in John. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said unto them, why are you troubled? And why do your thoughts arise in your hearts? He says, behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. It's me. I'm here with you now in the midst of your troubles and, and uh, distresses. I'm right here with you. And then he says, uh, handle me, touch me, feel of me. The word handle means to feel. Handle me, feel of me. And, and uh, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. So here we have again a little insight into this glorified body. You could handle it. You could touch it. And it had flesh, skin, and it had bones. If you reach far enough down in there, you could feel the bones like you can on yourself. But it had no blood. His blood was shed on Calvary's cross. And so, Jesus said, touch me and handle me. What do we know so far about the glorified body? We know at least three things. One thing is we know it looked like Jesus did before he went to the cross. They recognized him. We know he could enter a room somehow without opening the door. So his body was not subject to natural law. We also know it was a real body, though. You could touch it and feel it and... He could shake your hand. You could hug his neck. It's a real body. You know he's going to have that real body in heaven. You and I will get to see that real body and fall at his feet and worship and touch that body. Well, so we know those things. And then notice the last verse. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and feet. Can you see it? He says, here. Here, look, and they, he's already said, handle me. So they touch him, and maybe they kiss his hand, and they're looking, and they're just, that's when their sorrow was turned into gladness and joy. When they saw, that's that word perceived, when they finally understood that it was Jesus himself in a glorified body, a resurrected body, then they were glad, as verse uh, 20 tells us. Look at verse 20. And when they had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord, when they perceived who it was. Now, not only did Jesus have a glorified body, but the Bible says you and I are going to have one. Look at this. Look at your screen. Philippians 3.21. Who, that's Jesus, at his coming, who shall change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. <laughs> we find out something else about the Jesus' body. It's glorious. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a, a body like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Just in case you would read that and think, well, how in the world is he going to do that? Paul adds, well, he's able to do all things unto himself. He's the creator, and he can create glorified bodies that will last for all eternity, and that he will do. Again, in 1 John, beloved, now are we the sons of God, the children of God. Right now, if you're saved, you're a child of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know all about that future, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. <laughs> and uh, for we shall see him as he is. And so we see a little bit about that glorified body. Now we come to verse 21. Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you. They had already said that in verse 19. He said, Peace be unto you. It was a common greeting, shalom, in the, among the uh, Jews. But that common saying now had a much deeper meaning. Paul would tell us that we have peace with God through the cross of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had just completed our redemption on the cross and said it is finished, so now uh, people can have peace with with God. We were, we were at war with God because of our sin. Our fellowship was broken and we were away from God because of our sin, but because of the cross, now we are reconciled and we have peace with God. But we can also have the peace of God. That means peace and tranquility of soul, even in the midst of trouble. They're all troubled. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're hiding. They feel overwhelmed and defeated. And Jesus gives them peace. Remember Jesus said in the upper room discourse, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not like the world's peace. Let not your heart be troubled. Here he gives them that peace. Peace unto you. I think when he said those words in that room, there was a peace in every heart. Maybe you could sense it in the whole room. Now, these were not just his, his uh, ten disciples, uh, what, the apostles. Uh, Judas, of course, has already hanged himself, and Thomas is not there. It's the ten of them, but there's other people in that room as well. We know that the, peop the two from, uh, from Emmaus had come back. Probably Mary Magdalene was there. Probably the other women who'd seen. There was, a, there was a group there. And he said to all of them, Peace be unto you. In our most troubled times, if we'll let him, 
he will give us peace. So he said, Peace be unto you. As my Father sent me, even so send I you. He said, in the midst of all their fear and all that's going on, he says, I'm giving you a job to do. The Father sent me, I'm sending you. You go into the world and let them see what real Christianity is. Let them see what it means to be a follower of mine. And share the message, tell of the cross and tell of the resurrection. And so they were given a great commission. Now this commission was not just given to the ten, again, given to everybody there. This is everybody's job. Later, Jesus, of course, before he ascends back to heaven, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And go into all the nations. And that's the reason we have a worldwide mission program. But you and I are supposed to be sharing the gospel as well. Pass out a track. Give, give you testimony. Let someone know you belong to Christ. Invite someone to church. Jesus said, as I have... The Father sent me, even so I send you. He gave them the commission. And then he said, uh, in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Now this is a tremendous verse. He breathed on them. That exact phrase is used only one other time in the Scripture, and that was when God made man in his own image. You remember Genesis 2, verse 7. He made man in his own image, and then he breathed upon him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Here he breathes on his disciples. It's like he breathed on man originally that in the original creation. Here we have a new creation of followers of Christ and he breathes life into them. Now it's not physical life here, but it's the spiritual life, the spiritual, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word breathe... We're breathing all the time, of course. This word breathe means to breathe with force or to breathe on purpose. So he breathed heavy on them. He, he breathed on them. Receive you the Holy Ghost. Now, to some people, this is confusing. Because we know the Holy Spirit doesn't come for another 50 days on the day of Pentecost. When he comes on the day of Pentecost, we are baptized, all believers are baptized into the body of Christ. And, and uh, they be, uh, become children of God through the new birth of the Spirit. And they are sealed until the day of redemption. That is, no one can snatch us away. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit until we are in heaven. But all of that took place at Pentecost. They also, of course, spoke in languages they didn't know. That was a miracle, the miracle of uh, tongues. They spoke languages they had never learned. It was a supernatural thing. 
But none of that happened here. In the Old Testament, we don't, we, people did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we do now. That took place on Pentecost too. From the time of Pentecost on, <clears throat> all believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And he's going to dwell in us forever, Jesus said. But that takes place on Pentecost. So watch this. I think this is, is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not F-E-E-L, F-I-L-L, filling of the Holy Spirit. Those other things happen to us. When a person gets saved, they are baptized into the body of Christ. They are birthed into the family of God. They are sealed until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes in to indwell that very moment. But you're not necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the only command regarding the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Be ye continually filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe this was a filling of the Holy Spirit for them. It's for to strengthen them in the midst of their sorrow, to enable them, to empower them. He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. This verse has meant a lot to me over the years. I may have said this back a few years ago, but maybe be worth repeating. When I was a young man and called to preach, I did not like to get in front of people. The fact is, you've heard me say before, I used to take zeros in high school on oral book reports because I didn't want to stand up in front of a, you know, a class of 20 or 30 or something like that. So when the Lord was calling me to preach, <coughs> like... Luke said about the disciples, I was terrified. <coughs> Excuse me. I was terrified. And along the way, I came to this verse. I knew the Bible said all of us need to be filled with the Spirit, but there's really no formula A, B, C in any one portion of Scripture that tells us how to be filled. But I knew I needed to be filled. This verse meant a lot to me because I began to picture the Lord Jesus in my mind, breathing on his disciples, and then I began to picture him breathing on me and filling me with the Holy Spirit. And that has stuck with me through all these years. I never preach. I never stand to preach until I've knelt and asked him to breathe on me the fullness of the Holy Spirit. When I get up in the morning, I ask for that. If I have a task to do that seems difficult, I ask him to breathe upon me the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine in my mind him breathing just like he did right here. Maybe that'll encourage you along the way. It's been a lot to me. Then I've got to move on. One more verse, verse 23. He says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, on first notice you look at that, it almost sounds as though he gives his followers the right to forgive other people's sins. 
Nothing could be further from the truth, of course. Only God can forgive sin, not us. But the Catholic Church has taken it that way, and the Catholic Church draws from this verse to say certain ones among the uh, Catholicism can forgive sins, of course, the priest. And, uh, and they take it from this verse. But the tenses where it says, whom you remit, they are remitted, indicates they've been remitted in the past. And uh, the sins you retain, they have been retained in the past. This is not the forgiveness of sin. This is the declaration that someone is forgiven or is not forgiven. Look at your screen again, and let's think about this together for a moment. It's pretty important. The eminent Greek scholar, Dr. Uh, Manti, says... Uh, about this verse, whosoever sins ye remit or forgive shall have already been forgiven them. And whosoever sins ye retain, that is forgive, shall have already not been forgiven them. In other words, you're declaring not forgiving. In other words, the disciples did not provide forgiveness. They proclaimed forgive forgiveness on the basis of the message of the gospel. Again, Dr. Weiss says, it translates like this, they have been previously forgiven. Whose sins you forgive have been previously forgiven. And so you're making a proclamation of what's already true. And then Dr. Ryrie maybe sums it up the best. Since only God can forgive sin, the disciples and the church here are given are here given the authority to declare what God does when a man either accepts or rejects his son. So we have the right to say, if you receive Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. I say that quite often. And I have a right to say that because it was given to us here. And if someone has rejected Christ, we have the right to say, your sins are still there with you. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you do not come to me, you will die in your sins. And so we have the right to proclaim that forgiveness according to what people do with the Son of God. I love the story. It's, I've told it before of many years ago. I came across it again this week in the writings of John, Dr. John Phillips. It's about a lady who's on her deathbed, and she was raised Catholic. <clears throat> and, uh, but she had come to Christ personally as her personal Savior many years before she became sick. And so she is now on her deathbed, and she's happy and at peace and content that, with her Savior. But some of her Catholic family has the priest come up and visit her. Now, they're well-meaning, nothing, no, nothing spiteful. They're just well-meaning. They ask their priest to come up and visit, and he comes up. He's a very nice man, and they talk and chat. And finally, he asked if she needed to confess any sins to him so he could forgive her. And she, in her little weak voice, said, 
come closer. And he came closer, and she said, come a little closer. And then he was very close, and she said, let me see your hands. And he held his hand out, and she took him by the hand and turned it over and back like this. And she said, she said, no, this just won't do. This just won't do. The one who forgives my sins has a nail print in his hand. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. And only he can forgive sin. You and I can proclaim it. That's a great privilege, isn't it? Trust Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment and just give you a quick recap of this this passage we've been looking at. Jesus and his followers, in the midst of their sorrow and heartbreak and disappointment and discouragement, you ever get that way? Hurt, mistreated, you ever get that way? Disappointed, discouraged, feeling like no one understands, confused, overwhelmed. You ever feel that way? When they were feeling that way, notice he came to them. Jesus comes to us, not in his glorified body, but now his glorified body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He comes to us now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he comforts and strengthens us. He he came to them, he reassured them that it, was, that it was he. He said, it is I myself, touch me, handle me, feel. That's what brings the comfort when we acknowledge that Christ himself, the risen Christ, is right with us in the midst of that trouble, that trial. He assured them, and then he gave them peace. You need peace. Are you troubled? Jesus can give you peace. Aren't you glad? Even in the midst of the trouble. He doesn't always work it out and make it easy. But he will always give peace if you'll let him. And then he commissioned them. There's something for all of us to do. In the, in the midst of your trouble and discouragement, just get busy and serve Jesus. Love him and do something for him. And uh, keep, keep, keep it on. For Jesus. He commissioned us to share our faith and, and to do it in a loving and a kind way, of course. And then he enabled them as he wants to enable us so that we have the strength, the filling of the Spirit to face adversities and problems and burdens and hurts. But also, he enabled them to carry out that commission to give them the courage in the midst of all the persecution that's going on, to give them the courage to share the message. Let's watch the little video. And as I say, maybe it happened something like this. Let's watch it together. It was late that Sunday evening, and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Then Jesus came, stood among them. Peace be with you. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his side.
disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you, do that before it's too late. Bow with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together today. Lord Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross because you loved old sinners like us so much. And thank you that when you came into that upper room, you didn't fuss at them, you didn't rebuke them. They had failed you miserably, but instead you spoke peace to them. Some are troubled here today. You're not rebuking them. You want to speak peace to their hearts. May they trust you for that peace, I pray. And for those who have never received you as Lord and Savior, may they do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.